Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Keep Calm and Carry On. I'm your host, Daniel Paris. As most of you know by now, I tend to take the long view, whether looking at Russian history or the stock market. Consistent with that approach, I'm working on a new book that puts the last 30 years of stock market history into some historical perspective. My guest a few weeks ago was Edward Macquarie, who has taken the last century of stock market data and expanded it back, in what I called at the time a Herculean effort, an additional century to give us two centuries of good data to parse. Uh, upon doing so, he concluded that several widely accepted assumptions about the capital markets may in fact be wrong. His catchy phrase, uh, for those of you with a statistical bent, is that some of our most cherished notions about the markets fail their out-of-sample test. Turns out he was just the warm-up act. Uh, those of you listening to that episode may recall that at the end, he pointed out the work of Dr. Paul Schmelzing, whose research goes back 800 years. Yes, you heard me correctly, 800 years. Well, today's guest is Dr. Paul Schmelzing. Paul is a postdoctoral fellow and uh, a lecturer at the Yale School of Management, and he's also a visiting uh, researcher at the Bank of England. One uh, a word of disclaimer, his opinions expressed today are his own, not those of the Bank of England. Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Dan, for, for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. So let's start, Paul, with your, your Bank of England working paper. It's on your website, uh, the Bank of England website and SSRN. Uh, it is entitled Eight Centuries of Global Real Interest Rates, uh, R minus G and the Super Secular Decline, 1311 to 2018. Uh, not a typical topic. Uh, how did you get onto this topic? Well, most of your audience will be familiar with the market debates over the past couple of years, the post-08 macro environment and all the big new uh, controversial debates that we've been having about um, how much of a sea change was 08, uh, how do the new unconventional monetary policies change our, our market world, and what about these... Uh, you know, curious and mysteriously low interest rates around the world that came to everybody's attention right around, you know, 09 or 10 or so. And, you know, increasingly this debate heated up about the so-called secular stagnation, about, uh, you know, the zero lower bound, negative policy interest rates, and, you know, whatever kind of camp you were in, the one thing that people seemed to agree was that it kind of started somewhere in the 1980s. Somewhere in the 1980s, we had some sort of inflection point around the world, you know, after Paul Volcker got a grip on, on the oil shocks and the inflation spike. And since then, for some reason or another, uh, global real interest rates trended downwards. And, you know, everybody was increasingly befuddled what caused this multi-decade downward trend. Some people, you know, were in the demographics camp, other people were more in the inequality camp, or, you know, people like Ken Rogoff were in the debt build up camp. Um, and so, but they all circled back one way or, or another to the 1980s. And as someone trained uh, in economic and financial history, you know, looking at the past couple of decades is, uh, 
the same thing as, as looking at the past couple of second, seconds for uh, a bond trader in the markets or so. So you're kind of not really satisfied with that time horizon and you want to dig deeper. And so I started with, I came from this whole policy discussion and I really wanted to dig deeper and I was not really satisfied with the empirical situation. And so when you want to look into the deeper history, the one work that you stumble upon inevitably is uh, Homer and Silla's history of interest rates, the, uh, the seminal work uh, that dates back to the year 1963 when, when Sidney Homer first uh, published the first uh, edition. Um, but, you know, for all the path-breaking work that, that these two guys did, um, it's an um, unsatisfactory work in many ways because these guys never worked with archival sources. They never worked with primary data and with primary sources. So it's a bit of a patchwork uh, uh, piece that, that relies on, on printed material in, in, in academic journals, um, but didn't really collect any, any new, uh, uh, you know, dusty old files and data. And so that's the job of the historian. And that's what I ventured out to do to really recreate global real interest rates on a high frequency, properly weighted uh, global level um, to really figure out what got us into this uh, mysterious low interest rate environment. So an ambitious project. So let's kind of uh, frame that for many of our listeners. Again, it's 40 years almost to the month. We're taping this in late November. Uh, The high point in interest rates, I believe, was November of uh, 1981. So it's 40 years from this point. All market participants, almost all the academics, are conditioned to think that interest rates have been coming down and that uh, that is, you know, this particular cycle is the cycle. And now there is, as we speak, an expectation that interest rates are uh, going to stop coming down and are going to rise and so forth. And so it's a very appropriate time to be raising the history of the history of the interest rates and setting the the, the sample right, getting the sample right. Uh, and then second, uh, you are f- sort of taking advantage of being a modern historian. Uh, you know, there have been advances in the past 50 years since uh, Homer and Scylla that uh, Edward McCarty pointed out that so much new material has been digitized in the past few decades that, frankly, it's been a lot easier for him to update even material from the 90s than, than not because so much historical material has been digitized. So how much of the dusty material were you getting into? And it's just, it really is, is what I was referring to uh, as financial archaeology, uh, incredible amount of research that you've done into medieval European, early modern, and modern history to stitch together the uh, a global history of interest rates. Tell us how that transpired. Did it, did it involve digital resources? Did it involve going through the rare book collections of uh, German city-states and Italian city-states? And, and, you know, tell us some of the highlights of that uh, research. No, in the end, it involved all of the above. Um, um, but <clears throat> the most time-intensive part is certainly actually going into the archives and, uh, you know, wading through really dusty material. And, you know, if you're lucky, then, you know, 5% of so or so what you're going through is eventually uh, a hit that you can use for your data set. Uh, and the other 95%, you know, they talk about random stuff and, and it's not really connected to what you're actually looking for. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, you're right that a lot of material has been digitized. However, I would say, you know, that's much more 
a case for the 19th, 20th century stuff than really, you know, the Renaissance uh, material and, and 14th, 15th century uh, material. Now, that kind of inception point in the 14th century uh, is really determined by two things. First, as you pointed out, my paper is called Global Real Interest Rates. Um, I mean, Homer and Silla, of course, have looked at nominal interest rates, um, but, but haven't really looked at real interest rates. The first robust inflation series that we can use start in the 14th century. Uh, they were compiled by a guy called Bob Allen, who in turn relied on, on other authors who, who compiled a country series. And the other, the other key thing that happened in the 14th century is that Italian city-states started consolidating their debt into tradable long-term instruments. So from that point onwards, in the 14th that's very helpful in a sense that that then creates a, a market which would have prices which you could then access. Exactly. So from that point onward, you can really talk about a, a secondary long-term debt market for sovereign debt. Okay, um, I think it's more of a stretch to to do that for earlier times, and so, but yeah, going back to your point, um, you can rely on on what the historian calls. A printed primary material, uh, which is you know not not the original archival file, but which is a compendium of archival files in printed form, basically. But they but they are you know they are the original thing, but simply printed in a collection uh, in book form, uh, and so it's a copy paste from the archive, so to speak, right? And especially in the nineteenth century. Uh, when we had the so the so-called the the period of the historicism, uh, the historical school in in Germany and elsewhere, there were tremendous efforts to compile historical material into so-called uh, printed primary sources, and so for every you know city in Europe that that has a history going back to medieval times, we have these uh, city level uh, chronologies, these printed primary. Uh, collections that often, you know, span 40, 50 volumes, uh, and and they basically uh, document every single political act, every single, uh, you know, war declaration, every single loan that they this city raised from investors and from merchants. And you know, you have to be patient. You have to be very, very patient as a historian. Uh, but if you um, but if you go through these so-called printed primary uh, sources, then it's another great. Uh, uh, group of of data points that you can uncover here, in addition to to archival stuff itself, and to in addition to secondary works. And it's probably also the case. I think many of our listeners will appreciate that modern Italian and modern German is not the same thing as uh, the prior languages. Uh, Italy comes as a nation state together in the nineteenth century. France in the in the nineteenth century, many languages spoken prior to that point. So you're you are not just dealing with uh, Dutch, English, Ita what we would consider Italian and German. I, I assume you had to develop some facility and, frankly, a, a dozen or different uh, so dialects and languages. No, I remember in, in high school, I always uh, asked my parents, uh, why do I have to learn Latin? What is it good for? Uh, will, it, will it ever you know, be useful for anything? But during my PhD studies, I finally found out what it can be useful for. So <clears throat> a lot of these sources are written in Latin, uh, or at least it's, um, 
it's a fusion of of Latin and local uh, languages. It's it can get a bit messy, but fortunately, if you're looking for the data points itself, uh, you know from the 14th, 15th century, people start using Arabic numbers rather than um, rather than Roman uh, numbers, and so it, it's a bit easier to to decipher the data points themselves, uh, and you can ignore the so these these contracts are. Uh, dozens of pages long, and most of most of these contracts they talk about you know some sort of religious context or some sort of they try to defend the uh, the charge of interest for a couple of uh, for most of these documents because of, obviously you have usury laws uh, during these times and um, it's a reflection of the times these kind of contracts. But yes, uh, my native language is German, and you know. Even the uh, the fourteenth fifteenth century German is is pretty messy. Uh, it took me quite some time to decipher these kind of old German contracts, but um, uh, you're getting there, and uh, it's it's uh, uh, you know you feel pretty proud once you have figured it out. Well, your 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 nineteenth century German forebears who created the modern profession of history, I think, would be quite proud of the <laughs> of the effort. So, congratulations. Let's let's get uh, circle back to one point that you made just before we head into the content of this material. You referenced real rates, so we're looking at nominal rates of return in various contracts: cities, states, kings, municipalities, landowners. Anything you can gather, you risk weight them, you quality weight them. You're looking at what the nominal rate of return for borrowed money might be. And then you are adjusting those. Take you show those rates of return in, in your paper, but you're also adjusting them for the rate of inflation at the time. And that's important because uh, you want to look at the real rates of return or real rates of growth of uh, financial assets. Important, I think, to mention that to advisors and financial advisors and participants today, because we're actually used to, inflation has been so low and coming down for so long, for 40 years, that we no longer really draw a distinction. You guys do, meaning academics, draw a distinction between real and nominal. Because for a practitioner, real and nominal for the last decade or two have been pretty close and trending trending in the same direction. And so we've gotten lazy. We, we don't talk that much about real because nominal is close enough for most of us. But what over the long sweep of history, that's not a very good uh, methodology. So we're going to be talking about real rates of return uh, and that is after adjustment for inflation because that mattered through much a, a, of history. And so you, you've put together these kind of two data series, nominal rates of return, inflation created a real rate of return. What, what were you expecting to find 800 year? What would have... What would have contemporary practice, meaning contemporary now, academic finance, have suggested that you were going to find? And what did you find about real rates of return uh, over this, uh, this period? So, so you mentioned the, the, the real inflation-adjusted basis. And look, finance theory, going back to Irving Fisher and all these classic texts, obviously uh, distinguishes very sharply between nominal and, and real interest rates. Because basically it says people like Irving Fisher and the Fisher model and these, these, uh, these seminal pricing models for, for, for bonds, they basically predict that, look, your nominal rate is going to fluctuate around based on supply and demand, based on you know, these, these day-to-day uh, um, expectations. But basically, 
your real interest rate or your neutral interest rate, which is a monetary policy concept that's even you know a, a bit more nuanced. But basically, once you adjust for for outliers and so so for for short term factors your real interest rate should be pretty constant actually over the longer term. It should stay pretty close to other slow-moving macroeconomic indicators like the growth rate, like the population uh, changes that take place in a society. And it shouldn't really you know, show any distinct long-run trend. Uh, you know, the, the catchphrase here is the steady state interest rate that so many people have or at least in the academic context, have, have been throwing around for, for many years, i.e. the idea that whatever happens really to, to the macroeconomy, like the, the labor market prints, the CPI prints on a monthly basis, whatever these short-term fluctuations, there is a steady state, slow-moving, uh, very constant uh, uh, interest rate call it the steady state rate, the real uh, uh, neutral rate, the real interest rate that is pretty range bound over the long run. Okay. So I started with these kind of assumptions. Let's let's stop there because I just want to circle back because many of my listeners will be familiar with Irving Fisher in a variety of contexts, most of them positive, a couple of them negative, but let's circle back. He turns out to be a seminal figure in modern economics. He did a lot, most of which is really good and important. He had the unfortunate uh, luck of saying in uh, September of 1929 that the markets had reached a permanent plateau. I'm going to absolutely butcher history and say, he uh, said, basically by analogy, he said the same thing about real rates. He did not, uh, Irving Fisher fans, please. But it's useful in the context of podcasting to say that the man had a, a view of uh, flat rates, whether it was uh, uh, the market in 1929 or long-term rates. The second reason my uh, listeners are familiar with Irving Fisher is that in 1906, he also did a lot of good work about cash flows and the valuation of assets, which is leads into the, the discipline of dividend investment, which uh, is, is my day job and something that I advocate. So there's a lot of very good stuff in Irving Fisher. He was uh, a pioneering early economist, uh, set up shop at Yale, never left. Uh, and uh, you know, after Alfred Marshall really creates a lot of uh, the framework for um, finances, we know it. And so he deserves a, a lot of credit, uh, even though if we're setting him up for a bit of, a bit of failure. Also, I think it's really important. I've spent the last couple of years bashing a lot of modern finance formulas. Modern finance formulas really do like steady state risk rates. CAPM and MPT really work much better with notions of equity risk premium or risk-free rates that are stable as opposed to all over the place or trending towards zero or trending way, way up. Mm -hmm. So in, in that environment, you're looking at the data and uh, you know, we've had a century of Irving Fisher-esque type finance, which really is biased towards having these steady, predictable, usable, formulaic rates. And that may not turn out to be the case. Correct. And and even, I mean, we don't have to blame Irving Fisher for everything, but, but even market participants who never read uh, Irving Fisher, they usually come from the point of view, okay, Look, I grew up in the 60s, 70s. Then we had these big oil shocks, okay? That was an outlier to in one direction. 
And since then, we've been declining. And so the, the 60s, 70s kind of level between 3 and 5%, that should be the normal level prior to any shocks or, or any weird stuff that, that happened in the 1980s. We should go back to a 3 or 5% range, somewhere in between. That's the kind of natural level that you know a lot of senior people in markets and in, in academia are used to. And that's what they naturally assume is the natural level of, of interest. And, and I literally tell clients that. So shame on me. Tell me why. Tell me and why. So, I'm so wrong. You, you asked what my my prior was. Obviously, uh, that was one of the narratives I grew up with as well. And so I was kind of expecting, uh, if you put a gun to my head ten years ago or so when I started this, uh, that we should, you know, we might find interesting event studies. Say in the 16th or 17th century, 30 years war, we see interesting outliers one way or another. Uh, but we can we can find out if that if that assumption about these range bound uh, interest rates uh, is really true, okay? Um, and I had no strong prior assumptions what I would be finding. Um, but the key thing is that I think um, the the new empirical evidence not just challenges the whole policy dimension here of the of the secular stagnation. Uh, uh, view of, of, of policy implications that, that a lot of people are discussing in treasuries and at the IMF and at these kind of institutions. But also, I was going to suggest that it is also challenging from a more theoretical level, the idea that interest rates should correlate to a lot of these other macroeconomic variables that you mentioned CAPM and these asset pricing models uh, have assumed for a long time. I'm going to, and I, I said so in the paper, and uh, it's 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 going to be uh, in a more nuanced form. It's going to be in the book uh, that that I'm writing, but over the long run of history, there is very little evidence that real interest rates should be strongly correlated to any of the usual suspects that are being thrown around in these discussions over the past years, be it demographics, be it growth rates, be it consumption. Uh, uh, rates uh, and and so that's that's the more theoretical level that I try to challenge uh, uh, with this endeavor. Paul, I'm concerned. I don't think you're going to be able to get a job in academic finance with that type of uh, <laughs> approach. You throw a lot. You're throwing a lot of rocks at a lot of glass houses. There, you may you may need a plan B uh, for. Uh, but I, I'm sure we can. Well, if any of your listeners has has ideas, then uh, we'll 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 be in touch. I, I, Wall Street has Wall Street itself has plenty of room for for rock throwers. I'm not so certain about. Uh, academic finance. Okay, so non-correlated to the usual suspects, population, productivity, government policy. You have a whole separate paper that is on government interventions. You can kind of find that they don't don't affect the rate outcomes as much as people would think. Instead, we've had 800 years of declining real rates of return on high-level, high-quality government securities and private securities. That Again, the expectation is flat, maybe up and down, correlated with macroeconomic events, with wars, with et cetera. But it turns out it's not. Instead, it is a secular decline. Describe that. You know, you, you put the numbers around it, but what, what does that actually mean when we talk about uh, rates and secular decline approaching negative? Correct. So, so one of the key findings here is that um, people who who had access to let's let's imagine someone in the 16th or 17th century 
had access to the data set that, that I published, um, he would have concluded in the 16th or 17th century that people in the early 21st century, 400 years later, would be debating the zero lower bound and would be engaged in all these discussions about negative policy rates. What does it mean? Does it upend finance as we know it? What, what's happening? Uh, uh, we don't get any return anymore for. Because we're talking about a deep, deep historical trend on not just sovereign assets, but I'm also suggesting it, it holds true for safe private rates proxied by mortgage rates over time. Um, that has been going on uh, since the late 15th century. So, so I'm timing the inflection point uh, at the late 15th century, at the end of the so-called bullion famine that gripped the international financial system for, for close to half a century then. Um, but basically from, from the late 15th century onwards, we are seeing a steady, persistent downward trend in real interest rates, on both safe and more risky fixed income assets around the world. Um, and I'm, I'm saying the, the, the slope that I'm finding, I'm saying it's between one and two basis points per annum by and large, you know, with, with outliers here and there, obviously, and short-term shocks in both directions. But it's, it, it's remarkable that this trend, in my view, it's remarkable that it held throughout all these different monetary, all these different fiscal, all these different growth and demographic regimes. It just went on and on and on. And whatever short-term shock affected the international financial system, we always came back to that one to two basis point downward trend in the end. So we've had eight centuries of data, six centuries of decline. Interestingly, your paper really doesn't take a strong stand in explaining that. Maybe, I assume the book will, which is why we'll all want to read the book and we'll have you back on the show to discuss the book. But you do rule out the usual suspects uh, because you point out it doesn't correlate very well with the other main trends of history that we have at the time, whether it's demographics and so forth. And so, but it, it does beg the question and, and necessitates the question of why the sixth century of declining rates of return, real rates of return on assets. There has to be an explanation of some sort. Uh, correct. I mean, I, I didn't want to give give away any any strong uh, explanations to create a bit of suspense for the book, obviously. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, my again, my, my starting point here were the usual suspects, the, the dominant explanations that people have have brought up uh, to explain the post, so-called post-1980s uh, downward trend. And um, you have three, four um, factors that, that are mentioned time and again in, in academic research where people have strong opinions and have, have made strong claims. Uh, one of them being down, uh, productivity growth that is trending downwards, i.e. the Robert Gordon argument that, that he made in his, his 2016 uh, uh, book, um, so, i.e., you know, we're just not as innovative anymore. We are. So, even though we're incredibly innovative, but when you compare that to going from a hand plow to a horse in medieval Europe, Google cannot keep up with that rate of change. That rate of change was so much greater that e even though what all of our shiny objects look really nifty, they can't compare with the rate of change of prior 
developments that look outdated now, but were just totally world changing at the time. Correct. So, so i.e., the printing press just trumps uh, the the internet of of, of today, um, and so the the real per capita growth rate should proxy these productivity uh, uh, jumps pretty closely. So, so one of the measures and the the advantage is that um, Angus Madison is the is the most famous guy who compiled uh, growth series for centuries for countries around the world. Um, he died a couple of years, passed away a couple of years ago. We now have much better series for all of the economies that I cover on the real interest rate side. And so we can compare very nicely trends in productivity and in income growth for seven centuries with trends in capital returns and the real interest rate. And over long periods of time, I found virtually no correlation between these two measures, even though you mentioned these models and and I mentioned some of these strong claims that are, uh, you know, circulating, uh, there d- doesn't seem to be any strong evidence over long periods of time that these two measures correlate very well. In fact, they diverge over the long run of history. So i.e. most of your readers will, will know that growth rates accelerated Really, only from the Industrial Revolution in the in the mid nineteenth century. Uh, so think of growth rates since the Renaissance as a hockey stick. Okay, so they are basically flat until the um, you know early nineteenth century when they start accelerating little by little and then faster from the mid nineteenth century. So it's a hockey stick over the long run. The real interest rate series is uh, the the complete mirror image in many ways, okay? So it trends downwards from, as I mentioned, from the late 15th century, and we are now hitting, uh, obviously, sub-zero levels. Uh, so it's in, in a way, it's a reverse hockey stick, okay? Um, whereas all these models would predict the exact opposite. So so that's, that's the growth rate for you. Uh, that is not really cutting it, okay? So productivity, productivity, and F, therefore growth doesn't seem to correlate well uh, as an explanatory factor for the decline. Well, as you rate. mentioned, I, I answer that question mostly in the negative in that Bank of England paper, okay? Uh, by now, I have I have a bit, you know, a better idea what the potential positive factors here could be, and and what what frameworks and what models seem much more promising. Uh, I think I will hold off for the moment until until I have that in in published form. But it will be useful to to look at demographics as well, for instance, because that's uh, obviously for for people in pension funds and and uh, you know sovereign wealth funds or so they will be thinking about this a lot. So um, intuitively, it makes a lot of sense when people say, "Look, societies are aging. You know, you have longer retirement periods. People have to save much more." Okay. These savings pile up across advanced economies, and people put these savings into fixed income and into government bonds, and that should weigh on the yield. Obviously, that, that I mean that makes intuitive sense. The problem with this explanation is that rising life expectancies they didn't start in the 1980s either. Okay, it's not some sort of uh, you know we we didn't discover penicillin or so in the 1980s uh, and, and made some amazing leap in global life expectancies. Then no, turns out it's something that started in the 19th century, round about then as well. These accelerating life expectancies at birth 
for people in Western economies. So we're talking about, uh, and, and we have great series for, say, the UK for, for life expectancy on an annual level. So we're talking about even for, for people who would have savings in the 16th and 17th century and invest stuff in bonds and think about you know, long-run risk, uh, long-run retirement periods, etc. So your average life expectancy in the 16th, 17th, 18th century is about 40 years, okay? It's incredibly short. It's about half of what we're talking about today. And then it starts accelerating throughout the 19th century. Uh, so we're hitting 50 by the late 19th century, life expectancy. Then we're moving on to 60 around the 1930s or so. Uh, 70s in the 1970s. And you know now we are basically at 80 for for males and, and females a bit higher. So again, it's not something that started in the 1980s, even if you take into account, okay, these welfare states come into existence mainly in the interwar period, these these institutionalized uh, pension, you know, savings, savings um, uh, uh, funds, they come into existence, you know, early 20th century, call it early 20th century. Again, the timing just isn't right, okay? We should have been seeing a big inflection point in real interest rates uh, around the late 19th century, early 20th century. We are not seeing that. So again, uh, demographics are not really cutting it uh, as an explanation in my view. And so I'm going through through various of these, of these factors. And as I mentioned, I'm answering uh, the whole question in the negative, what's causing this, okay? Um, the one thing I think that I should stress, because a lot of people, the first thing they tell me is that, oh, it's about declining risk premia, okay? Obviously, the king of France defaulted all the time in the 14th and 15th century. And if a merchant wasn't willing to give him a loan, well, he cut his head off or threw him into jail. Now, that's not happening anymore, uh, even though France, I'm not sure if, if everybody would, would leave his money into in, in France nowadays. But obviously, sovereign creditors are much more okay credible nowadays than in the 15th century uh, uh, debtors i should say um fair point but obviously one endeavor in the paper is to isolate the safe rate um over time okay so strip uh these these all these sovereign data points of of the risky issuers over time isolate the safe ones and then compile a series here okay and so and the safe rate also comes down over time. Correct. That is, Correct. it is not so, stable the way one exactly. would expect. And so I have a series with zero default events over a 700-year period, okay? And no executions? <laughs> and, and no executions. Basically. Okay, just checking. <laughs> um, and that series is denominated in the reserve currency over time, okay? So uh, it's not that uh, this series was was subject to debasement risk as well, which is a big factor, obviously, in when we're talking about the early modern period or so, where kings and, and rulers debase their currency all the time prior to having central banks, okay? Uh, you simply lower the gold content of your circulating medium by something like 50% or so if you need a quick buck for fighting a war against your neighbor or so. That happens all the time. Until, can... Isaac, until Isaac Newton comes along and says, enough, we're not going to do that anymore. Correct. It turns out the Venetians were the first to do that. Um, uh, so 
I see the point of obviously the risk premium coming down across all these issuers, uh, but it's not a story of declining sovereign risk per se. Okay, it's default risk per se. That's I think that's an important point uh, for your listeners. Okay, so so the the usual suspects are not the cause of of the decline. We'll wait for your book to get the explanation as to why all these rates are coming down. But in the meantime, you do raise points that become relevant to contemporary both policymakers and, and I'll say engaged investors. And it's kind of reflected in a simple formula, but there's also a, a, a very sort of self-evident uh, political angle to it. And it's it's referred to as R minus G. would like you to explain that and uh, also explain the, the political context, uh, at least introduce the political context. You don't have to take sides. Uh, I'll take sides for you. But uh, just explain why since, say, 2014, in the midst of this uh, uber low cycle, it has become a, a political issue, at least in regard to certain circles who read books and read the works of economists and so forth. So R minus G has become this this catchphrase, as you mentioned, since Thomas Piketty uh, published his book in, in 2014. Um, you know, piggybacking their title-wise on on uh, on famous or infamous uh, predecessors there in the field of, of political economy. Obviously, Karl Marx published a book of the of the same title, but um, at in its basic form, R minus G uh, denotes the spread between the return on wealth and the uh, uh, growth rate of the economy, the growth rate of output, okay? Um, and the argument put forward in 2014 was that this spread between return on wealth and the, the growth rate of the economy um, is a proxy for inequality in many ways, okay? Because not everybody is subject to returns on wealth on his on his income side in society obviously only people who help who hold significant amounts of financial assets really care about the return on wealth uh, be it in the form of of um, real assets i.e real estate housing uh, or or tradable uh, just just financial assets like bonds or stocks or whatever Okay, so obviously it makes sense that the bottom 50% or call it even the bottom 80% hold much less of their uh, net wealth, if they even can speak of net wealth, in in these kind of uh, assets that have a long run return, call it 6 or 8% or whatever um, you can expect over your lifetime. These people are usually subject much more to the growth rate of the economy, which determines their wage income. Okay, uh, so m- most of their income, if they are employed, are coming through the for the wage side and not through a return on on any financial or or real estate asset. And so the thesis there is that if R minus G is rising, that means the people at the top are getting much more than people at the bottom. And the thesis being, if that R minus G spread is staying high and even rising secularly, i.e. For, for decades to come, then we are seeing a 
huge polarization of Western societies because the top 1%, the top 10% are massively uh, gaining at the expense of the rest of society. That was the thesis uh, put forward. Okay. By Tom, um, again, this is for Thomas Piketty, 2014. It became a cause celebre among uh, academic and policymaker circles that the returns on, on financial investments held by the wealthy are higher than the genuine rate of growth of the economy. And, and that's just kind of wrong. And we need to address that. And that was the context in which you've stepped in with your research. Correct. Um, now you have to dig a bit deeper into uh, Piketty's Excel tables and and compilations there to find out why why he's kind of making the claims and and long run assumptions that he's making, uh, because he is uh, he is using history or or he's trying to use historical evidence to to push his arguments here. Um, the problem is that, for one, he's uh, relying on Homer and Scylla. And secondly, he's uh, misstating uh, even the evidence that Homer and Scylla put forward on long-run uh, interest rates and returns, um, which leads him to the, to the big claim that over the long run, up until the 20th century, R minus G was a steady figure. He claims that this spread historically was 4.5%, with no fluctuations in either side on the structural level, i.e., you know, absent short-term shocks, it was always 4.5%. Um, there's no such statement in Homer and Silla's uh, book, um, but also um, my data suggests it's not true in a qualitative sense in any way. We can reconstruct R minus G on the basis of, of the new data that I that I uh, hope to convince people of. And as I mentioned, we have all these new G series on the growth side. I just mentioned these, these uh, output and, and per capita income series that, that have been much refined in recent years, uh, which we can use for the G side. And we can calculate R minus G on a high frequency level now since the Renaissance. And if we do that, and I present these, these approximations and charts in the paper, we are seeing that R minus G is on a 700-year downward trend as well. Okay, so I present different measures of R minus G. I have one series for safe R minus G, global R minus G, land R minus G. The idea being that uh, land is the most important component of wealth over time. Okay, so people in the 14th or 15th century, their main wealth item is land. Okay, it's, it's not not so much uh, um, uh, ETFs or... Their stock in internet internet stocks, yeah. <laughs> or Bitcoin, exactly. So um, I'm trying to approximate changes in the wealth stock over time with these series. And assuming you, you've added the weighting for the more recent time is more weighted towards non-land assets, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, and I'm relying on, on, on previous work by some people who, who try to approximate these wealth stocks, obviously, but, but we didn't have these R minus G series uh, so far. Um, so what, what does it mean if the R minus G spread is trending downwards over time? It simply means that the top 1%, the top 10% in the 14th or 15th century uh, were you know, several dimensions ahead of what today's top 1%, top 10% uh, 
are squeezing out of the um, out of the overall wealth stock in in Piketty's terms. So inequality was much much more pronounced uh, after the Black Death in the early 15th century, when we talk about the, the age of the Fuggers, the age of the Medici, these were the real times of extreme social polarization, extreme uh, class conflict, and, and very, very sharp distinctions. Since then, actually, global inequality has trended downwards. Okay, And, and that makes sense, because obviously... When you think about all these political developments that happen in parallel, the democratization process, you know, the the rise of unions, of of equal voting rights, all these kind of uh, developments, they have actually improved the situation of the bottom 70, 80%. And we are seeing it in the in the wealth return data as well. These kind of these kind of contrasts between the top one percent and the bottom 99% or whatever way you want to splice it. Um, is much, much less pronounced and is trending downwards over time. So uh, Elon Musk needs to do a lot more if he wants to get up to the level of the Medici's. He's not there yet. Uh, Those are interesting, almost fighting words, given the current political environment. So I'm really glad that you've been able to uh, articulate this view. Uh, um, I dare say, I'm not going to say a positive, optimistic view, but a not a negative, pessimistic view about wealth inequality, I think there are other occasional voices who are making the same same claim in a different way, different topic, different data set. Steven Pinker at, at at Harvard as well. So that's 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 very notable. Has uh, uh, Thomas Pinketty uh, r- had a chance to comment on your work, or is that not is that going to happen later? The fireworks going to happen later. I think we, we had a we had a debate in a uh, Dutch newspaper last year, but um, we haven't had a chance to meet in, in person. And, and and at some point, you know, when all this pandemic uh, craziness is over, I hope there's there's a chance at some point. I should I should point out one thing though, uh, which is there are two different flavors of this whole R minus G debate. Uh, the other strand of, of, of debate where, where R minus G features very prominently right now is the whole debt sustainability uh, debate. Olivier Blanchard uh, published a, a very influential article uh, last year at, at his uh, AEA address uh, where he's using R minus G in a slightly different context. He's, he's talking about his R minus G is the direct spread between the real interest rate, the sovereign real interest rate, so not the return on wealth, but the sovereign real interest rate and the growth rate. And he's basically saying R minus G will stay low for a very long time. And that's why governments should be much more relaxed about high uh, debt levels and, and taking on a lot of you know, debt and engaging in fiscal stimulus these days. In, in trying to get the economy back on track because we will simply grow out of these uh, debt stocks uh, if we project R minus G levels forward. Um, so that's a slightly different, it has very little to do, it has nothing to do in fact with inequality. It's simply a debate about debt sustainability in, in advanced economies. And um, there, my data suggests much more support for, for that kind of debate. Uh, it's actually, you know, uh, Right, right, on point. I think in many ways, uh, given that we are seeing this long run downward trend in, in R minus G. I talked about 
both these concepts we can approximate with, with that new data, both the Piketty concept and the Blanchard concept. And it does mean that increasingly uh, governments can grow their way out of high debt stocks. Um, you should have been much, much more concerned, you know, uh, at the end of World War II, at, at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, when the British debt to GP ratio was at 300%. Um, these were really worrying times. 300% debt to GP nowadays, when you think about Japan, uh, has very different long run implications uh, because indeed R minus G levels on the Blanchard, in the Blanchard framework, are secularly changing. And they're changing for the better from the perspective of treasuries and and uh, political executives. Let's let's wrap up with some present clients, and it, not just for monetary practice of sovereigns, but many of the listeners to the show are practitioners in the market. They're actually financial advisors. Is the intermediaries that. Are, uh, I tend to work with and, and, and tend to listen to. They're uh, either managing money on uh, behalf of others or for themselves. And they have been faced with the narrative, 40 years of declining interest rates and an expectation that's coming to the end. The velocity of money has been very, very slow, but it's about to pick up. They're, the catalyst has, you know, we've had in the last year or two for <clears throat> the velocity of money to pick up. Uh, rates need to start moving up because governments need to start Taking rates up, and uh, and so forth. And I know you've you've shied away, and, and we're very specific about shying away, giving specific investment advice, which we're not going to do. And we do not speak on behalf of our institutions. But it's hard not to have a view, uh, given all this research that you've done uh, about the the broad contours over the next couple decades as practitioners and engaged investors think about the retirement savings, think about asset allocation, stocks, bonds non-financial assets, that is real estate or, or private businesses, and whether you know this 800-year history matters or not. But the next two decades really does. And I, I don't know if you have any words of wisdom for, for those, those individuals. No, I think I appreciate that, that none of your listeners probably has a 700-year investment horizon. So I want to, I want to make an attempt to, to sketch out the, the short term, so to speak, i.e. the next decades. The point, one point I would like to make is that, isn't it amazing that we are, we are experiencing the strongest bounce back in global GDP growth in many generations uh, from very, you know, from a big slump, obviously, but we're talking about massive growth rates in the long, in the long perspective. But the 10-year treasury in nominal terms is at 1.67%. You know, that already tells you a lot about the state of the the fixed income market and what kind of what the kind of supply and demand uh, pressures here are. Um, I mean, and remember, the treasuries are at a high rate compared to bonds and other exactly. high quality securities. And no, it's not just a, a, a story of monetary repression and QE and just the central bank providing a floor for, for all these markets. That's the standard narrative for most of my so colleagues. If you, if you look at central bank balance sheets over long periods of time, which I'm doing in, in a different project, um, this is nothing like the real debt monetization periods in history, which we've seen time and again. We're not at these levels uh, in 2020. Uh, there's there's a very, very decent uh, uh, stock of debt in private hands, 
compared to to say the Napoleonic Wars or all these previous uh, big big macro shocks that are comparable to the COVID shock. Um, so this is really still a a highly market driven rate in my view. Okay, just because the Fed holds 20 percent, um, this doesn't make this a, a a Fed story primarily in my view. We in the equity side of the market always joke amongst ourselves that say, hey, the bond people are smarter than we are. So whatever the bonds market doing, we need to pay attention. But here you're basically saying that in, uh, even more so. We should take the 10-year at its low rate, 1. 1.6, 1. 1.5, 2%, doesn't matter. We should take that as a pretty strong signal of what you think rates might over the next couple of decades be given all of these pressures that you've identified in the trends over the last eight centuries that, again, you're not in the 10-year forecasting business. That's not your job. But you are you think the bond market is, is the signal coming from the bond market is not terribly distorted. It seems to be in line with long-term historical trends. Is that a, a fair summary? I think, I think that's a fair summary. I would say... Um, in the short term, there's every reason to expect higher ten-year uh, interest rates. Uh, look, we're talking about what six percent uh, CPI prints at the moment. Uh, for sure, these one point six percent on the ten-year they will go up uh, over the short term. But uh, I have a couple of charts with uh, fiscal deficits since the year sixteen sixty-seven or so, which we can calculate with a pretty high frequency as well. Um, so you can you can look at all these monetary plus fiscal uh, stimuli events over time, uh, and then see if these real interest rate trends came back to trend or not. And as I mentioned earlier, each and every time they return to trend, they return to their minus one to two basis point downward slope in the end. Whether we are talking about the the World War One shock, the World War Two shock, the Napoleonic shock, the Civil War shock in the U.S. Each and every time, sure, we have we have a breakout for the short term. We have a fiscal massive fiscal stimulus. We have you know when we talk about World War One and Two, we have a massive monetary stimulus on top. We actually have balance sheets that are double, triple, quadruple the size as a share of, of, of private market assets and as a share of the total government debt stock outstanding. Okay, So these are the real debt monetization episodes. You have a short-term shock to nominal yields in these cases, but give it two, three, four years and these rates come down again. Determined by the market, Okay, this is a market-driven process. Uh, I'm focusing on voluntary a debt over the long run. Um, and that is my, there's no reason from the perspective of long run deep history to expect any other dynamic this time around, I'm sorry to say. for That's fine. It's no reason to be sorry. It's fascinating material. Do you have a uh, date for the book that we can look forward to uh, or you know, a season for the book that we can look forward to? It's uh, in the making, you know. These these uh, these academic uh, mills are, are moving very slowly, as as you probably know. Uh, but the current plan is is early twenty twenty three for the for the full book. It's a um, uh, it's a detailed book, so so it, it takes some time. But uh, but I hope I hope uh, uh, we can we can talk again uh, at that point when it's out, and I can reveal 
reveal what the causes of the 800-year decline, 600-year decline in, in secular rates of return and interest rates. I'll keep everybody in suspense until then. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, thank you. I look forward to having you back at that time. My guest has been uh, Dr. Paul Schmelzing. He is a postdoctoral fellow and lecturer at the Yale School of Management. He's also a visiting researcher at the Bank of England. And his current articles on these topics are available on his website. It's not too hard to kind of Google him and get it either from SSRN, from Yale, uh, from your website. I encourage uh, listeners to look at it. The paper on the 800-year interest rate cycle, it has uh, a very readable summary. You don't have to go through all the, uh, the the data. It makes its point quite clearly. And then again, we have the, the book uh, to look forward to in early 23. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. Thank you so much, Dan, for, for having me and, and uh, uh, talking to your, to your listeners virtually. Very good.